Matthew 19. Uh, if you've peeked ahead at the handout, you may have noticed something a little unusual. So today I don't have to do a lot of review because we are coming to a good solid separation from what was said in chapter 18. So as you're there at 19, we'll read the text in a moment. Just You can kind of see the first phrase lets us know now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee. So we'll, we'll read that in a moment. Um, so this is a new section, and today I'm going to make good, very unapologetically, I'm not apologizing, I'm going to make good on something that I said almost two years ago. So last week, we covered 15 verses. Today, Lord willing, we're going to, by the end, Lord willing, be through verse 22 of this. You're like, man, Jeff, you're like setting records compared to what you've been doing. This is awesome. Well, in full disclosure, we're skipping verses 3 through 12 today. And you're like, oh, okay, you're one of those preachers that skips the hard things. No, we're not skipping the hard things. If you were with us two years ago, and note this date, if you're, not, if you're not with us, then you maybe want to write this over to the side because you'll find these on the website. Back in August to September of 2019, we were in Matthew 5. Yes, we've been in Matthew that long. So we were in Matthew 5, and verses 31 and 32 talked about the exact same issue of divorce and remarriage that the, that the Pharisees are going to bring up and try to trap Jesus in here in verse number 3. So if you'll remember, about two years ago, again, those dates, if you need to go on, you say, well, I don't want to skip them. I didn't hear that, or I need a refresher. Um, it was actually three messages, so we didn't go lightly. We ended up hitting Deuteronomy. We hit Malachi, a little bit of Isaiah, a little bit of Jeremiah. We hit Matthew 5. We hit Matthew 19. We spent like two weeks on this. We jumped over to 1 Corinthians 7 uh, and a couple of other places, a little bit in Mark, a little bit in Luke as well, and, and even Ephesians was in there as well. So in those three sermons, we covered a lot, and so that's what I would encourage you to go back and look at those messages because they are still on the website. We did not, we are not skipping, we've just already covered it, and so we're not going to take time this morning uh, to cover this again. It was so extensive and a lot needed to be said, and uh, it's a very touchy subject, so I'd invite you to visit that the first time or revisit it if needed about divorce and remarriage. But here's what I need to do. So I'm going to read verse 1 and 2. Then we'll skip to verse 13. I was very tempted to make verse 1 into a point, but I'm not going because the sermon is backloaded to verses 13 to 22 into two points there. So we're only going to make very brief comments at the end of the reading on verses 1 and 2, and then the majority of our time spent 13 to 22 this morning. Look at verse 1. So now when Jesus had finished these sayings, chapter 18, everything there was united. This is kind of a hint. This was not separated things. This was all condensed, one setting. Jesus teaches this. So he was up in Galilee, but now it says he went away from Galilee. Take a quick look up here. So you have Galilee, Samaria, Judea. Judea is down in, uh, Judea has Jerusalem in it. So the Lord is going away from Galilee. I'll go ahead and tell you, uh, for 18 chapters, Matthew has spent most of his time uh, talking about the ministry of the Lord up in Galilee. Our attention is not going to be brought back to Galilee until we get to chapter 28. So for nine chapters, we had 18 chapters of this. Now we're coming back nine chapters where the focus is going to be what's really going on down in Judea. And now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea. So again, Galilee, 
Samaria, Samaria, then Judea. And so you can kind of tell here, he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So from your perspective, I think I'm doing this right. We have the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and we have Judea, Samaria, Galilee, Samaria, Judea. And over here we have the Jordan River. And so it appears that the Lord, like many of the Galileans would do, to skip through Samaria, they would go on this side of the Jordan and come down and then come into Judea on that side of the Jordan. And that's the wording that is used here. So the Lord is now down south in Judea. He has made a few trips to Judea in the two and a half, three years of his ministry, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke have not focused on that. John is the one who really picks up the Jerusalem ministry, those, those short trips that he would take. Now, verse 2. While he's down south, on the other side of the Jordan River, the east side of the Jordan River, large crowds followed him. Remember, Matthew has used the idea of large crowds multiple times. Sometimes large crowds appear to have been as large as 20,000 people because they had 5,000 males. On another occasion, 4,000 males. And so we're talking about really large crowds. Use that word again. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Then the Pharisees come. They ask him about divorce. There's an exchange there. I won't even go into it. You just need to go back and, and look at those. Then he moves from there into a house. So again, down here, apparently they have some kind of house that they're staying in where they're headed. In the house, he talks to the disciples. Now, as I'm flipping over to verse 13, what I don't know is this next scene, is it in the house or is it outside? So there's this been healing ministry. Then there's confrontation with the Pharisees. Then the Lord talks privately to the disciples further about divorce and remarriage, corrects them, gives them some added perspective. And then still on, apparently on the east side of the Jordan River heading toward Jerusalem, Verse 13 starts taking place. Here we go. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. Doesn't say who is bringing the children, presumably the parents. But the next line is very disturbing because the disciples rebuked the people. So the children are being brought to the Lord for him to lay his hands on and pray. And all of a sudden the disciples start rebuking the people who are bringing them. Verse 14, but Jesus said, here's the idea to the disciples, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Note this phrase, for to such belongs. You let them keep coming, for to such belong, for such as them belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So now he's on the move. He's moving again toward Jerusalem. We know in a, couple, a chapter or two that he's going to find his way through Jericho to get to Jerusalem. Now the main body of our text today is verse 16 to 22. So he's on the move. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? The world is full of people who at some point in their life come to this thought. Uh-oh, I'm going to die one day. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Catch that again. Sounds strange to our ears. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? He says to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. 
Now he answers his question. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. What? I'm going to tell Paul on you. What is that? Verse 17. If you would enter life. How can I have eternal life? If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He says to him, this man, which ones? Which ones? <laughs> Apparently you're not tracking with what I just told you. Okay, well, play along. Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Lie. Honor your father and your mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? In fact, one of the other gospels, I think both of the other gospels tell us where he says, all these I've kept from my youth. I've done that. Anything else? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, so go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. The idea, you come follow me as a poor person, come be homeless with me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. If you would look at verse number 1 and 2. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Real quick, anybody want to guess what month that we're looking at? This is our month, not so much their month. Anybody want to guess what time of the year this is? They're leaving Galilee. They're heading down south to Judea. They're going to Jerusalem, by the way. Tens and tens and tens and tens and tens of thousands of Jews from all around the world. And tens and tens and tens of thousands of Jews are leaving Galilee and headed to Jerusalem. Why? Because it is what month of the year? Or the one before April? March, probably middle, late March, very early April. That's what I want to get across to you. We're talking about the Passover is literally days away. And so the Lord is heading like many other Jews. As I said a while ago, it's not that the Lord was prejudiced, but just apparently not to be offensive. He does like the typical Jewish trek down to the Passover, and he goes on the opposite side of the Jordan River, does not go through Samaria. Before he crosses the river, these large crowds. Why are these crowds of people following the Lord? Well, just think about it. Number one, he's very, very famous, and people love famous people. So people start flocking to see the Lord. Number two, he's the greatest teacher who's ever lived. Number three, he's the greatest preacher who's ever lived. Number four, he's the greatest healer who's ever lived. And they're going up to him, and they're being healed. The verse number two says, large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And I mean large crowds. Crowds of people are following the Lord. So they're headed. But I think beyond all of that, there's one other great thing that is drawing these large crowds. There's massive, I think particularly from the Galileans, there's this massive anticipation. What is Jesus going to do when he gets down to Jerusalem? A lot of them are thinking, I'm pretty sure. I think he's the Messiah, and I think it's time. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to announce that he's the Christ, and he's going to start setting up his kingdom on earth, and I want to be there to see it. They had three feasts a year, and the Jewish males, 20 years old and up, were supposed to go to these three feasts a year. But I think at this one, Jerusalem was especially crowded because there was this buzz. What is this man Jesus going to do? Now, you and I know, Jesus knows, here he is on this side. I'm going to propose to you, within seven to ten days, he knows he is going to be dying on a cross. And so that's why verse 2 is so unusual, and it speaks to his love I cannot, guys, I cannot say for certain that some in this large crowd who are being taught, 
according to one of the other gospels, and are being healed by Jesus. I cannot say they're going to be the very ones that in Jerusalem just seven, eight, nine days later are going to be shouting to the Roman governor, Pilate, crucify him. Probably some of the same crowd is going to be shouting against Jesus, crucify, crucify, because they're caught up in a mob mentality. But boy, on this day, they want to be healed and they want to be taught. And so Jesus knows this. Even if none of them are those people, none of them stand up and defend Jesus in his moment of trial. So they're either in on it or they're watching it and standing back and letting this happen. But on this day, the Lord, knowing what's coming, still loves them and teaches and heals them. Now, would you look at verse number 13? I told you I was not going to spend long on those first two verses. They're very transitional. And then the discussion on divorce and remarriage happens with the Pharisees, and then the Lord gives follow-up to his disciples. Now we move to verse 13. Would you notice, number one, this morning, Jesus welcomes little children. Very simple idea. Jesus welcomes the little children. Verse 13, then children were brought to him. Again, I don't know if this is in the house or is it outside, but the children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. I don't know how this happened. I'm... Pretty sure it was very spontaneous. I'm quite sure there was no announcement made. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, at 2 o'clock, Jesus is going to be available for any little children that want to come up and be touched by him and have a prayer prayed over them. I don't think that's what happened. So then what did happen? I don't know. Maybe some little child broke away and got to Jesus Maybe somebody's in line to be healed and they're wanting to be healed or they're just wanting to come see Jesus and hear him talk. And all of a sudden, maybe a little child gets away or maybe some mama sees Christ making eye contact with her child. And all of a sudden, let me see this little guy. guy?" And so Jesus is apparently, again, read between the lines. He starts interacting with little children. Remember this. The old song is absolutely true. Jesus loves the little children. Little children love Jesus. And all of a sudden, this interaction starts taking place and he's loving them and they're loving him. And he's touching them, and all of a sudden, here come a couple of more kids. Kids just love Jesus. And I'm imagining the disciples right about this point. Their minds are kind of blown because they're just probably chuckling like, I've never seen anybody like him. And again, this is just me reading between the lines. Before long, the Lord's like kind of running around, playing tag. And, and all of a sudden, he's got them down, and he's tickling them, and he's, they're tickling him, and he's acting like he's getting beat up on the ground, and they're winning. And all of a sudden, he's throwing them up in the air, and, ah, and all of a sudden, this is great, and everything's wonderful. And these parents are seeing this, it's like, you get over there and get with Jesus. I don't want to. Get over there and get with Jesus. And all of a sudden, here comes more and more kids. But in my mind, it really broke out when this started happening. When all of a sudden, he gathers them in and the Lord starts praying. Father, would you please, God, this one right here. Go home and get our kids. Get over there. Get the kid. We're getting a blessing put on our kids. Barclay writes it this way. Again, the idea of what parent would want Jesus to touch their child and pray a blessing over them, Barclay writes. They had seen what these hands could do. Think about the hands of Jesus. The hands of Jesus, he writes. They had seen what these hands could do. They had seen them touch disease and pain away. They had seen them bring sight to blind eyes and peace to the distracted mind, and they wanted hands like that to touch their children. But look at verse 13, right in the middle. At the end, the disciples rebuked the people. Write this down. This is mind-blowing. The disciples, apparently, within like three days, if I had to guess, have already totally forgotten what the Lord says back in chapter 18, verse 5. This is one chapter. 
So here we're just starting chapter 19. I'm flipping back to chapter 18 as you're writing that. Listen to verse number 5. The Lord had just told, presumably like three days earlier, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. He's just used a little two, three, four-year-old back in the first five verses of this chapter as an example of what true humility and what qualities the Lord looks for in a person. He sets that little child in their midst, and all of a sudden now the disciples are rebuking people for bringing their children. Again, chapter 18, verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name, receive. the Lord had just told them, receive the children, welcome the children, and now they are refusing. Get these kids, get these kids back. I don't know why the text doesn't tell us. There's a lot of the text is very short and compact. Is it is this simple? The disciples are rebuking people from bringing their children to Jesus because, is it, is it this, they don't want their private time with Jesus interrupted. Hear that. Hear that. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Some people are hindering ministry to kids because they don't want their private time interrupted. I got my time with the Lord. Don't care so much about what's happening with the children. I don't know. Maybe that was it. I'm throwing it out there. Second possibility. Jesus needs protected and defended. He doesn't know how to take care of himself. He gets overworked, overburdened. He needs some rest. Get these kids back. A third possibility. And this very well may be it. The Lord doesn't need to be spending his time and his touch and his prayers on little children. It needs to be reserved for very important, urgent cases. We've got demon-possessed people and blind people and lame people and people with palsy and internal bleeding. Lame and maimed and missing limbs and leprous. I mean, his hands need to be put on those kind of people. We don't need to be wasting it on the children. And so they start shouting, hey, get these kids back. Get, get the kids back. Get it. No more. That's it. That's it. Stop breathing. That's it. And they're putting up a little barrier. And right about then, the Lord, very indignant, according to Mark 10, Mark 10, 14 says, the Lord became indignant with his disciples so much, though, that he rebuked them. So as they're saying, get these kids back, the Lord says, no, you stop. You stop. You Get over here. Sorry, buddy. I love you. Just give me a second. You stop doing what you're doing. You let them. Watch. The disciples are devaluing children, and the Lord is highly valuing children. Look at verse 15. He laid his hands on them and went away. To me, that seems to be saying the Lord stayed until the last child had been blessed by his hands and prayed over. And so before we leave this first thought this morning, let me give you two takeaways. The first I'm going to borrow from R.C. I'm sorry, from J.C. Ryle. You see it on your handout, but I want you to hear it first. Will you hear it first? And then we'll write it. What's our takeaway? Ryle writes the following. These verses, he says, Let us draw from these verses encouragement to attempt great things in religious instruction of children. Let us begin from their very earliest years to deal with them as having souls to be lost or saved. And let us strive to bring them to Christ. He writes, let us make them acquainted with the Bible as soon as they can understand anything. I write that and let's think about it just for a moment. Watch his mindset. Ralph says, let us draw from these verses encouragement to attempt great things in religious instruction of children. Now he writes, 
Let us begin from their very earliest years to deal with them as having souls to be lost or saved. You guys understand what that means. The, the most newborn baby in our church this morning, all the way through the fifth grade, those who went out here, whatever we want to call children among us, they have little souls. They have souls. And they're going to spend eternity in heaven or in hell. They're either going to be lost or they're going to be saved. And we need to start dealing with them early on as human beings with souls. After that, he writes, let us strive. I'm thinking of the word strive, and it, to me, in my mind, the word strive means let us labor, let us work, let us give great effort to what? Bring them to Christ. That's our ultimate goal, grace for you. What the Lord would be telling us, and I think Ryle's hitting it exactly right, we don't want to hinder children. We want to see them being brought to Christ. Bring the children to Christ. Bring them to salvation faith in Christ. Now, how? And again, Ryle writes the following. Let us make them acquainted with the Bible. As soon as they can understand anything. I thought about this. I have three physical Bibles that in the course of the week I'm going to put my hands on. This is one of them. This is the one that I study out of my office in and I preach here. I have another one at home and then I have another one. I have my devotional one at home and I have another one in my office that I checked as a quick reference. If we were to employ what Ryle is after... I think there's great value. I love the new technology. I love having the Bible on my phone. But if I were talking to a new parent or parents of young children, I think I would tell them, literally, let them see you holding the Bible. Let them see you reading the Bible. Let them see the Bible all around them. From the, like he says, from the time they're able to understand anything, from the time they're able to understand who mom and daddy are and colors and all those things, let the Bible be all about them. But even more than letting them see it and touch it, start teaching them. Let them be well acquainted with what the Word of God says. You be living it in front of them. So with all of these, these things in mind, can I ask each one of you this morning, are you part of this process here at Graceview? Bringing the children to Christ from the earliest days, helping to make them acquainted with the Word of God. Again, with the goal of bringing them because they have eternal souls. Are you part of that? Because as we illustrated a few weeks ago, imagine if you do it again. If you were saved by age 12 or younger, like I was, you put your faith in Christ by the age of 12 or younger, would you please raise your hand? That's you this morning. All around the building, looking around again, like then, probably two-thirds, looks like about 65 to 70 percent of us. If you know that's such a fruitful ministry, should you be part of it? One more thought, verse 14. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Why? Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Look at it carefully. Look at it carefully. Let them come, for to such belongs the kingdom. Notice what it does not say. It does not say, let them come, do not hinder them, for to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. The text does not say the kingdom of heaven belongs to children. It says the kingdom of heaven belongs to such. So y'all help me out. What's implied? There's two words that are implied. They're unsaid, so our mind fills them in. They're understood. So y'all help me out. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such, what next two words? To such as these, to such as them. So he's not saying the kingdom belongs to them automatically. If I pray over them, they're going to get saved. That's not what the text says. What it's saying is to such as them. What does this sound like? This sounds like chapter 18, verse 3. So flip back. It's not going to be on the screen. Flip back in your Bible. You've got your Bible. Go back a couple of pages. At that time, verse, chapter 18, verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Which of us? 
Verse 2, calling to him a child, he put him, a little child, in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children. Jesus is now reviewing the same exact thought. I say to you, unless you turn and become, he's telling the disciples, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now the Lord is telling us to such as them, to such as children. So y'all help me out. This is why we review. A few weeks ago when we were in 18, we wondered what does it mean to become childlike? What qualities of a child is the Lord actually looking for? So let your mind go because it's not in the text. What is it that every person in the world has to become like a child? They have to have this quality in their life if they're even going to go to heaven and enter eternal life. Raise your hand. You think, I'm not going to ask you. You don't have to say it out loud. But raise your hand. Being honest, I think I remember one of them or two. Do you remember one or two, right? Anybody want to offer? What was it? You have to be like a child in that they, little children, what? Dependent. Absolute. Great. That's awesome. Little children know it is not up to me to defend and protect myself. It's not up to me to provide for myself. Little children know that they're takers. And so I think that's what the Lord is saying. For you to go to heaven, for you to have this relationship with God, this is what the kingdom is made up of. People who realize they are the receivers. They're the takers. I'm not making my way to heaven. I'm just receiving salvation. Does anybody remember the other one? Anybody remember the other one, the harder one to remember? So they have a humility, absolutely. So they're not going to like, I, I can never pay you back. Anybody remember one more thing about children? They believe what they're told. They believe what they're told. Write this note. The word such in verse 14 means not that the kingdom belongs to children, but that the kingdom of God belongs to those who become such as children by realizing their ultimate dependence on God and by ultimately believing what God has said about how to be saved. Do you believe? Have you had that point in your life where just like a child, well, God says that's how you get saved. And so that's what I've done. We're like a child. You realize I cannot save myself. I'm a taker here. I'm not one who's providing. I'm not one who's protecting my own way from hell. I'm the one who's just receiving. Literally, we, we emphasized this a few weeks ago. I am spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing to bring to the equation. All I can do is receive. In fact, Mark 10, 15, the Lord tells them in this passage, same idea, we must receive the kingdom of heaven like a child. You must receive it. So Jeff, how do you get saved? It is this. When God, when you understand that God has said, I'm going to save you if you put your faith and trust in Christ. I'm going to save you. And all you do is, okay. Okay. You don't move your arms. I take it. I take it right now. I receive your salvation. That's how you have to be. Now, secondly, this morning, would you notice that Jesus in verses 16 to 22 encounters a rich man? Jesus encounters a rich man. Behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter into life, keep the commandments. I'm going to approach this particular text noting five things about the encounter of the Lord with this man. Five things. Number one, his questions. And by questions, I mean verse 16, his question in verse 17, and his question in verse 20. They all reveal a performance theology. So here's this young man who we know is super wealthy. He has much possessions, great possessions. 
Guys, the idea in verse number 22, when he walks away sorrowful because he has great possessions, I think what it's saying is, even more than any of the other disciples, perhaps more than all the other disciples combined, it would be such a life change for this man to come to Christ because he has great possessions. We know he's young. We know this guy is wealthy. We call him a, 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 the rich young man, but he's also a what? You're like, Jeff, I didn't see this. It's confusing. I could have sworn the Bible calls him a what? the rich young ruler. And so that is Luke. So note a couple of things. Luke says he's a ruler. We know he's young. We know he's rich. Young is what? Probably not in his 20s, probably in his 30s. Not a lot of people in their, in their 20s, late 20s and early 30s are super, super wealthy, but this man is. Mark adds to us, we'll see it actually in a minute, that this man ran to Jesus and got on his knees in front of him and starts asking this question, Teacher, as Matthew records it, we're going to see a little addition in, in the other Gospels in a second. Teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit or to have eternal life? So he's on his knees. He's super wealthy. He's young. I mean, he's got it all going. He has everything going. In his favor, let me say this. This man is genuine, real, very genuine throughout. The Lord continues to interact with him. At one point, one of the other Gospels said the Lord looked at him and loved him. He loved, like literally what he says when he, when he says that he's kept these things, what more do I have to do? The Lord like looked at him and loved him. He apparently felt such pity for this man. But he had a problem. So he's genuine, very sincere, has a high level of humility as compared with other human beings, especially human beings in his level. Not a lot of young people get on their knees in front of another man. Not a lot of wealthy people get in, on their knees in front of someone else. And not a lot of rulers, presumably a ruler of a synagogue, they do not get on their knees in front of people, but this man's doing it. So he's genuine, he's sincere, but he's highly misguided. And as I'm studying this this week, I had a big problem. And I pointed it out already when I read. Why does Jesus deal with this guy this way? Teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Everybody listen carefully. Jesus deals very personally, very uniquely with this man. Can I advise you? You won't hear me say this often. Don't do what Jesus did. I'm going to, all, about all the time, 99.999% of the time, I'm going to say, you go out and do exactly what Jesus did. But let me offer to you, if anyone ever comes up and asks you verse 16, don't you say verse 17. Don't you say that. Hey, how do I go to heaven? Keep the commandments. Have a good day. Don't you do that. So we're wondering, why is Jesus doing this? Can I propose that the Lord is doing this? If you want to take a note, as the knower of hearts, so Jesus has a huge advantage. As the knower of hearts, Jesus dealt with this man in a very personalized way because his ultimate goal is to show this young, rich ruler that salvation, eternal life, must be a matter of grace and faith and surrender. And you say, Jeff, I don't see grace and faith anywhere in this discussion. The Lord is on a path to show this man that salvation must be a matter of grace and faith and surrender. Now, we do see surrender as the Lord is showing his lordship, and this young man rejects the ultimate command of Christ. But notice, it's very personalized, very unique presentation. 
I thought of this. I thought about particularly two other encounters the Lord had with someone. You remember how he dealt with Nicodemus? Nicodemus, the Lord dealt with him very uniquely. Nicodemus ultimately needed to realize that salvation, eternal life, is a spiritual event. It is a one-time spiritual event we're not born with. No one is born with this, Nicodemus. You're born physically. You must be born again. And he used this unusual phrase, being born again. That's John 3. John chapter 4, the Lord deals with a Samaritan woman at a well. And he deals with her very uniquely, starts talking about living water. Why is the Lord doing that? Because he knows she's there to get water out of the well The Lord says some unusual things. The Lord does some unusual things there with the woman at the well because he realizes she's actually very thirsty in her soul for something far more important than physical water. And so the Lord started talking to her about spiritual, living water. So he knows Nicodemus' case. He knows the Samaritan woman's case. Here this man, this young rich ruler, comes up to him and says, what good thing, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And so watch, the Lord begins right where he's at, and he starts dealing with him right there because the Lord has an advantage. He knows this man in his heart and soul truly thinks he is righteous. And the Lord has to break that down. Second thing Jesus does. Number two, he accentuates his identity. Jesus accentuates his own identity. And you may look at that and say, actually, it looks like he's doing the opposite. Guys, I've read this over and over. Knowing that, as we said last week, whatever interpretation of a text that we come up with has to match the entire message of the Bible and of the New Testament, and Jesus' words has to match his own words in other places, then it becomes very evident that the Lord is not downsizing and downplaying or denying his divinity and his deity. He's not denying his goodness. The Lord is actually accentuating it. Look, if you would, verse 17. So he comes up and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to to have eternal life? And he said to him, Now here's one way to read that, right? Watch verse 7. Here's one way to read it. Why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one who's good. What are you doing? Whoa, whoa, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who's good. But in fact, the word good is disputed among the scholars because Matthew Words it a little bit differently. So I told you we'd look there. Flip, hold your spot. Flip over just a few pages. Mark chapter 10. You're going to want to look at it. Flip over. Next gospel is Mark. Go to chapter 10. Look at verse number 17 and 18. Mark 17, Mark 10, verse 17. And as he was setting, he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him. Now watch different wording. Good teacher. So that's, remember Matthew has it. Teacher, what good deed? So the scholars have debated, what is the word good supposed to modify? Looks like Matthew and Mark are at odds. So back to Mark's account. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, here's one way to read it. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. But that's not how it's to be read. So, Jeff, what do you think? Which one is right? Is, did Mark write his gospel first? 
And did everyone read that in such a way that they misconstrued that Jesus is denying his deity and he's denying his goodness? And so here comes Matthew writing at a later date and thinking, I'm going to correct that problem. I'm going to switch the word good and make it come down to what good deed must I do? So it does, at least they'll have to struggle with it because I don't like the way Mark wrote it. No, I think the answer is both of them are right. And the way we know what Jesus actually said is to take both accounts. So I'm going to propose to you that Jesus uses the word good twice. Good teacher. What good thing must I do to have or to inherit eternal life? Good teacher. Now here, going back to Matthew 19, would be another way of reading that, or many ways, but just not the way that I read it the first time. Verse 17, he said unto him, Why do you ask me about what is good? Do you see the difference there? Why do you ask me about what's good? There's that. Not what's happening. Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. So this is subtle, but I want to propose to you that the Lord is what he's, do- what he's saying here is, okay, wait, I'm going to answer your question. But before I answer your question, we need to lay some foundation. I'm not denying what you just said. You just said that I'm good. I'm not saying I'm not good. I can't help you and then walk away. Hope you find your answer someday. That's not what the Lord does. The Lord is saying, I want you to slow down and process. You need to understand something. You just called me good. I think this is what the Lord's saying. You don't run around and call everyone else good, do you? I hope you don't call anyone else good because compared to God, no one is good. There is none good, none righteous. No, not not one except Jesus. And so what the Lord is saying is, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. First things first, before I answer your question, you called me good. There's none good but one. I want you to feel, do you feel the significance? You just said that to me. I'm not denying it. I'm not saying I'm not good. In fact, you are right to call me good. I want you to understand and feel the weight of that. Do you, understand? do you know who you're talking to? I'm not only good. I'm more than good. There's only one who's good. It's God. Now to your question. So if you're taking notes, the Lord says, he never says, I'm not good. The Lord is actually establishing, I think, a foundation here in which whatever he ends up commanding this young man, he wants him to feel that it is a command from God himself. I could say it another way. To deny or to disobey Jesus is to deny and disobey God. So the Lord is actually accentuating his identity and his deity and his ultimate goodness. And I'll say it further. The reason he's doing this, he stops instead of just jumping in to answering the question because the Lord knows ultimately where he's going to head to. It's what we call verse 21, where he's going to give this order and this command. And so the Lord is accentuating. He's building a foundation for something he's going to have to do later. This man needs to feel the weight of one that he's called good, and there's only one that's good, and it's God, gives him a very specific order to him. Number three. Do you notice with me, number three, the third thing that Jesus does? So number one, this man's questions just reek of performance-based theology. What good thing do I need to do? You have to keep the commandment. Which ones? And then he goes on. Okay, I've done that. What else do I lack? His three questions. Performance. Jesus accentuates his identity. Number three, write this. Jesus seeks to reveal this man's sinfulness. He seeks to reveal his sinfulness. So we read this and we're wondering, Jeff, come on, man. Why is the Lord doing this? Why doesn't he just like start talking about grace? That's how a lot of people 
think they're soul winning. My brother was sharing with me something he's learned on how to share the gospel. And, of course, I've learned the exchange, and we've compared notes before. And one of the things he likes about the exchange better is that one that he has learned starts more with uh, offering salvation and trusting Jesus. And then it backs up and does what we're about to talk about. And I think that order is backwards. What Jesus says here in verses 17, 18, and 19 are diagnostic. He's, doing, he's laying diagnostic groundwork. Verse 17. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Lord is not laying out a works-based salvation. Someone could come along and say, hey, I can show you from the Bible that the way to get to heaven is by doing these things things. What the Lord is actually doing is preparing him for the true answer of how to be saved. But before he can be saved, y'all help me out, he must first be lost. Write this down. This man's heart's very misguided. This man's theology is very twisted. It's performance-based, and the Lord must uncover this. And so before, this is key, this is so important, one of the most important notes you'll write today. Before anyone can be saved by God's grace, they must first acknowledge their sin. If you don't get that point, you're going to struggle with how the Lord ends or lets this end. You're going to struggle with how the Lord lets this end. Because you're going to think, why did the Lord let this end this way? This man didn't get saved. The reason is because before anyone can experience and trust and be saved by God's grace, they must first acknowledge their sins and their sinfulness. That is mandatory. And so any proper evangelism, if we're going to evangelize and share the gospel with someone, try to lead them to Christ, that must progress. I love the way the exchange offers it. There's a certain progression. Jeff, what is it? Write this down. We must progress through God's holiness and then God's justness, and then God's love, and then God's grace. To begin at God's love, hey, you want to go to heaven? Jesus loves you and died on the cross for you. He'll save you if you just ask him. That's not the gospel message, not yet. Everybody, Grace, you better get this. The first thing you have to do is get the person lost. That's what Jesus is doing. He knows this man is lost. He's not proposing, hey, so you're going to try to get to heaven that way? Well, if you'll just keep the law, he knows that is not an option for this man. But this man thinks it's an option, so the Lord has to expose his twisted theology, his misguided heart. I thought about putting this on the screen. I'm going to ask you guys, hold your spot here. It's not on the screen, so flip over to Romans 10. Just flip Romans 10. I just want to show you two quick verses because it's in essence what the Lord is doing. Romans 10. So here's the idea. Until anybody sees their sin and their depravity and their judgment, do you notice the order? Proper evangelistic order is God's holiness, and we've broken His holiness, we've sinned against it. God is just, and He has to punish our sin, and so we're going to experience judgment. But now, feeling the weight of judgment, now we tell the person that God loves us so much, He sent His Son to die on the cross. He took our sin, He took our judgment, and then that leads ultimately to God's grace, where God will give away salvation for free. But the Lord is going through the progression of that. You're in Romans 10, look at verse 5. 
Paul writes, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. You're like, wait a minute. There's a righteousness that's based on the law? If you want to go to God, by the way, most people in history have chosen verse 5. This man in Matthew 19 is choosing verse 5. The majority of the people in the history of the world are going to go, they're going to face the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're going to go thinking, I'm keeping the righteousness of the law. I've been a good person. Surely you've noticed this. I tried to be better than them and them and them. I've got to be in the upper echelon. You're going to let me go to heaven, right? Verse 5, Paul correctly says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. Here's what he writes, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. If you'll do the commandments, yeah, you can go to heaven. You can go to heaven by keeping the commandments. The only thing is you've got to keep them. I'm sorry, the law, yeah, you've got to keep them. Now verse number 6, but the righteousness based on faith, oh, wait, what's that one? The righteousness based on faith is where God says, my son died in your place. He paid for all your sins. I'll save you if you put your full faith and trust in him and take him as your Lord and Savior. Faith in that, well, like, I'd much rather go by faith because that's the only one that really works, Paul says. But the righteousness based on faith says, and then it goes through that whole classic text that ultimately leads up to verse 13. Go back to Matthew 19. You see verse 17, 18, 19? I'll go ahead and tell you. Nothing Jesus says in verses 17, 18, 19 are the actual answers to how to get eternal life. (laughs) Nothing he says. What do I have to do to have eternal life? Well, keep the commandments. Which ones? He gives them six. Nothing there is the actual way to get to heaven. You're like, so then why did Jesus do this? He's doing this to set this man up for the true answer, which we know is ultimately this. You have to be like Abraham and believe and trust in the promises of God. David did it. Abraham did it. The prophets and the saints of old. And now that's what this man had to do. Unfortunately for this rich young ruler, he ends up leaving before he ever acknowledges his sin. And he never even hears the good news of the gospel because he will not. Are you tracking with me? He never hears the good news of the gospel that it's by faith, God's grace and faith in Jesus. He never gets to that because he rejects being lost. He rejects his own sinfulness. He doesn't acknowledge that. And so he's not a candidate for the other. He doesn't need grace if he thinks he can earn his way to heaven. And even when he feels the weight of his sin and acknowledges, oh, I do have what you just showed me, he's still not ready to give up his sin, and so he's not a candidate for the full gospel. He's not ready to let the Lord be the Lord. Jesus tells Nicodemus, even as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that all who believe in him will not perish. They'll have everlasting life. He tells the woman at the well, if you knew who was asking you for water, physical water, you would be asking me for living water. So he's basically telling her the way to have eternal life is by asking me. I'm the one you need to be asking. This man never gets to that point because he never acknowledges his need. Look at verse 18 quickly. Which ones? Which ones do I have to keep? Y'all help me out. What Jesus is saying like Paul did in Romans 10, if you're going to choose the working your way and you being righteous and you keeping the law, if you're going to choose that as your method to try to get to heaven, then the answer to this question, which commandments, the answer actually is what? All of them. 
all of them. Does anybody remember how many commandments did the Jewish rabbis count in the Old Testament for Jews? Not 10, not 100, 613. So how many? Which ones you got to keep? All of them. How many? 613. You keep those perfectly from the time you're conceived to the time you die, you get to go to heaven. But the Lord doesn't do that. He only brings out six. Now watch verse 20. Look at verse 20. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept. Okay, I've done that. You got anything else for me? <laughs> oh, I remember when I was younger. I was like in middle school, early high school. I went to a tiny little Christian school. Tiny little Christian school. If you were there, you were on the basketball team. Twelfth grade, fifth grade. You're on the basketball team. You're on the football team. No, we didn't play contact. We played flag football. My cousin, Bruce, he's with the Lord now. Bruce was our coach. And there was this young guy, a little bit younger than me, named Chris. And Chris was like four years younger than me. He's like a fourth grader. And, man, he wanted to be on the football team. What we got to do? And he was all energetic. And Bruce thought, this little kid just keeps driving me crazy. He's not going to be on the football team. So it's the first day of practice. And Chris had been all anticipating, yeah, when's football going to start? So finally we get out to the field. And Bruce thinks, as the coach, I'm going to wear this little boy out and show him he doesn't belong. This is going to wear him out. All right, boys, on the line, let's run. And we ran, 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 ran. Chris ran, ran, ran. And we come back. And he ran us again. He came back. And Chris is still like, when are we going to start this, that, and the other? The bottom line, my point is, Bruce ran the whole team into the ground trying to get this kid to quit, but the kid would never quit. Everybody else is ready to quit. quit. Little Chris is still ready. Yeah, what are we going to do next? This is exciting. I'm on the football team. Like, no, you're not, dude. I'm trying to get you to lead the team. So the Lord's like, oh, you, you want to use... Righteousness and works as your method to get to the Lord will then keep these six commandments. And the guy actually has the audacity to go, done that, what's left? Anything else? <sighs> You're not getting it. And so I thought about this. What's his problem? Did he not hear the list? Did he not take time? I wonder, I would like to go back in time and hear this. How quickly did the Lord, did it go like this? Was this pretty much what it was? Which ones? And the Lord says, you should not murder. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, I've done all those. See, that's what we do. We hear the word of God very quickly, and we sign off on it as though we're good, and we don't take time to like, okay, wait a minute. Don't commit murder. Can I come back to you, and as, after I evaluate my life, how far are you going to get? I'll catch up with you in a little bit. I need to take some time. Yeah, you need to take some time. And then he would have come to the right answer. This man doesn't take, he just flies off. Oh, I'm good. I've done all of that. Write this thought. What becomes clear is two things. This rich young ruler does not understand two things. Number one, he doesn't understand the internal demands of Jesus' explanation of the law back in chapter 5. He totally does not understand the internal demands of Jesus' explanation of the law in chapter 5. The second thing he doesn't understand is also important. He doesn't understand that to break even one of God's laws is to break all of the law. He doesn't understand the internal nature, and he doesn't understand if you break one of the laws, you have broken the law. I said that that way on purpose. Hear the difference. You break one of the laws, you have broken the law. 
First of all, he doesn't understand the internal nature. Jesus, back in chapter 5, you'll remember it, some of you. You've heard it has been said, you should not commit murder. But I tell you that if you even do this, if you are what? Anybody? Angry. You have anger or hatred towards someone. You're a murderer in your heart. You've heard that it has been said you shall not commit adultery. We think don't commit the actual act of adultery. I say unto you that you shall not even look with lustful intent on anyone else. You've heard that it has been said you shall not swear by this and this and this. I, Jesus says, you shall not swear at all. Just be honest. Don't go around where you have to swear. You've heard it's been said, if you're going to commit, if you're going to get a divorce, then give the writing of divorcement. I say to you, don't get a divorce. That's what the Lord says. So this man doesn't understand the whole internal nature of things. James chapter 2. It's our last text that will go outside of this one. Look over at James chapter 2, verse number 10. It's the second thing this young man did not understand. James chapter 2, verse 10. You'll see a little different version what I'm going to read, but I, I, we kept, the ESV apparently has multiple ways of translating a few verses in the Scripture because they had another edition come out. And so what's on the screen is slightly different, but I want you to see what's on the screen. Watch what James, the Lord's half-brother, writes in chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law, just imagine this person, they don't exist, but whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, one point one day, has become, mine says, accountable for all of it. What you're looking at says has become guilty of all of it. Again, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So the idea that this man is missing is to fail in one point, is to break all the law. Some have broken more of it than you have, but all have broken some of it, the law. Years ago, I used to think of the law like this, and can I propose it so we can have a visual? Think of a very massive chain, and it's got 613 links on it. And you're at the bottom, and part of this chain is strapped around you and you with the weight of your life are dangling over hell and for you to not go to hell you have to keep these 613 links which each one represents a law if you ever at one time fracture even one part of one of those the weight of your life is going to break and you're going to deservedly plunge in the hell that's what James is trying to get across to us that's what the Lord was trying to show this young man this day but he wasn't getting it you break even one of it you've broken all of it but don't think of like oh wow I think I've broken several of the chains if you take the spirit of the Old Testament basically you picture that chain and it's like it shatters all of it and we have no chance we have no hope we're falling into hell and deservedly so unless the Lord in his grace and mercy stops us this man did not realize that Make your way back to Matthew 19, as you do. Before we hit our fourth thought, I want to make sure that we're not like this young man. So I just want to ask you some questions. Be honest inside. Have you ever, at any point in your life, been angry with anyone else? Yes, you have. Can you honestly say that all the anger you've ever had toward anyone has always been righteous anger? When that person came over in front of you while driving, was your anger, dude, 
you're going to cause a wreck, and that person behind me is going to get hurt now. No, that's not, you weren't thinking about them. How dare you? I'm going to, you know what it is. You're in a hurry, and there's a long line, and this little side road or restaurant, little fast food over here, and they're there, and you're thinking, don't, don't even try, and you're nudging up, and they're trying to nudge in line, and you're getting mad at that. I know y'all have never done that. Y'all have never, I've done that before. Murderer in the heart. Like what? Question. Be honest with yourself. Have you ever looked at anyone with lustful intent? Not asking, did you ever look at someone and notice, oh, they're attractive or good looking, anything like that? No. The question is, have you ever looked with lustful intent? The idea of you looked again to stir up lust within yourself. If the answer is yes and the answer is yes, then you're an adulterer at heart. Have you ever taken anything that was not yours? These are the ones I always use. You have to forgive me. Even as a little child, have you ever taken a pen or a pencil from someone else? Did you ever swipe a quarter? Did you ever swipe another kid's lunch money? Did you ever take a toy when you were in nursery? When you were in school, did you ever steal someone else's information that was on their page because it looked better than what you had or what you didn't have, so you stole their answer to the test and the one that gets most everybody here this morning? Have you ever been on a job that you're paid to do that job, but you're actually taking time on your personal phone and swiping through and making texts and calls and checking the internet while you're actually getting paid to do the job? You're stealing time. You're stealing the money from your boss. Have you ever taken anything that wasn't yours? Here's another one. Have you ever told a lie of any kind, an exaggeration or a deception or a bold-faced lie or unknowingly told a lie. I honestly thought that's what happened and I was wrong or I honestly thought that's what I was going to do. I just ended up not being able to follow through. Jesus never lied. All of us have. Have you ever dishonored your parents, ever dishonored your parents? You say disobeyed? It includes disobeying, but have you ever been anything less than sweet and honoring. It means not just to don't dishonor your parents, it means to actually honor the parents. So I would ask you, have you ever rolled your eyes at your parents, sighed at your parents, walked away from them, stomped as you walked away, slammed a door, delayed your obedience, had partial obedience, talked bad about your parents, even if it's just a sentence or two while they are not there, talking bad about your parents to someone else? You've broken the commandment. And one more. Have you ever not loved your neighbor as you love yourself? Have you ever not loved your neighbor? Have you ever not loved other people like you love yourself? And we hear that and here's what we say. Jeff, then everybody's guilty. Nobody has a chance. That's the Lord's point. All of us are guilty. And God is holy. And he hates our sin. And he cannot let us go to heaven with sin. And God is just, and he has to punish our sin. He cannot just let it slide. And that's why Jesus had to die. Number four, quickly. Jesus exposes this man's besetting sin. So he was seeking to reveal his sinfulness. The man didn't get it. And so now the Lord actually does expose his besetting sin. We'll not turn there. But Mark chapter 10, verse number 20, this man says, I've kept all these from my youth. Track with me. I've kept these from my youth. I don't know what that phrase means. I've not studied it out. It either means one or the other. I've kept these things, these six things you just said, I've done them all my life. Or does it mean, yeah, I didn't do them perfectly in my youth, but from my youth on, I've done them. Let's assume he even means the last one. If he's saying, okay, okay, but from my youth, I've kept, I mean, we do dumb things, 
So I can't say I always did that. But from my youth, I have kept these. In his mind, he thinks this. He's dead wrong, but he thinks he has kept the commandments of God. At that point, the Lord has a couple of options. He could have said, hey, listen, man. Unfortunately, even you breaking them in your youth is going to cost you eternal punishment in hell unless you get saved by faith. He doesn't do that. Second thing he could have done is said, well, you know what? At least he's willing to admit that he committed sin when he was young. Let me just work with that. Notice the Lord does not do that. The Lord will not let him slide with this mentality that at least as an adult, I'm a righteous person. Nope, I'm not going to let that slide. I'm going to show you you have sin in your life right now. And so the Lord revisits one of the six commandments. By the way, it's the easiest one of the six that he gave to show that we are sinful. Raise your hand. Don't say it out loud. Raise your hand. You say, I know which one he uses of the six. Okay? Let me give you a hint. Look at the list quickly, quickly. He doesn't say it by name, but the Lord very clearly uses one particular of these six to show this man his besetting sin. So here's the six again. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you were to go home and say, Jeff, if my eternal life depended upon it, from right now, it's 12.08, from now until tonight, when I go to bed at, say, 10.30 or 11 o'clock, what if your eternal life depended on you keeping those six? Look at the list again. Uh-oh. My eternity depends on me keeping these six? Okay, wait a minute. Don't murder and don't even be angry. I think I can. Surely I can do that. Okay. Don't commit adultery. Okay, wait. Just Or lustful intent. Okay. Take everything away, and I'm not going outside for anything. I'm just going to lock myself up. Okay. My eternity is riding on. Don't steal. I, I think I can surely do that. I'm not getting paid today. It's a day off, so I'm not robbing from the j- boss. Uh, don't bear false witness. Just don't say anything that's a lie. Honor your father and your mother. Hey, mom, dad, real quick, just want to let you know I love you. Appreciate everything you've ever done for me. Yeah, I can't talk long. I really, unless you need me to talk long. I'll talk as long as you want to. I really just pray for me today. I've got a lot riding on today. Thanks. I love you. Okay. Now do you see it? Which one's the hardest one? Okay, wait a minute. I think I could. If it really rode on it, man. I'm independent on these. I got to love my neighbor as myself. I'm holed up in a room trying not to commit the other five. Now you got to get out of the room. You got to go love it. Ah! Let me read between the lines. It's as though the Lord does this. Are you all with me? Young man, so it's your belief that you always do what God God commands? Yes. It's your belief that you love your neighbor as yourself? Yes. Watch. Okay. Having already established that I'm good, you called me good. I didn't deny it. Having already established that I am good, as you say, and there's only one who is good. Who's good? God. God, and I'm good, then you go do exactly what I say. If you have always obeyed God as you think, and if you do love your neighbor as yourself like you think, you will have no problem doing what I'm getting ready to ask you to do. What is it? Go sell all your possessions and go give it to the poor, and you come back. And follow me as a poor man. And he walked away sorrowful. 
the man said, I've done this, the Lord gave him one command that was too demanding. I can't do that. Why? Because I don't love my neighbor as myself. Before we hit the fifth one quickly, can I just throw a thought? I'll read my paragraph. This occurred to me. What if he had obeyed Jesus' command? What if he'd went and done it like little Chris on the football team? Okay. Sold it on. Gave it all away. I'm back. Really, you did it. What? Was this man close to becoming the first person ever to be saved by works? Had he went and done it? The answer is no. Why? Because Jesus knew his love for money wouldn't allow him to obey the Lord. Write this down. As the master evangelist who knows all hearts, Jesus perceived this man's weakest area. That's why Jesus could deal so uniquely with him. He perceived this man's weakest area, which was his love for his possessions. And so the Lord perfectly uses the law for its main purpose. The law is given to us not for us to keep it and try to be saved. The law is given for us to show us the character of God and the perfection that he expects for us to be able to go and live in heaven forever. And all of a sudden we can't keep even one of the 618 commandments for life with all of its internal demands. And if we break even one law, we've shattered all of the law. Now we're disqualified. And so the Lord shows him, using the law perfectly, he reveals now his besetting sin. And so that's what I have to keep telling myself. Jeff, tell the people, when they're trying to talk to people about their soul, don't be afraid to use the law. Make people, ask them, have you ever lied? Ask them, have you ever stolen anything? Just what I did with you a while ago. Make people be confronted. Jeff, I don't want to do that. I just want to tell them Jesus died on the cross. And if they'll ask him to come into their heart, ask Jesus to come into your heart, then they're going to go to heaven and everything's going to be good and I'll invite them to church. Talk to people about their sin. You've got to get them lost before they can be saved. Number five, he chose his possessions over Christ. The man just straight up chose his possessions over Christ. Verse 22 says, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. Do you all know what sorrowful means? He went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Sorrowful means he knows something. He knows he's been exposed. He's been revealed to himself. I do not love my neighbor. I do not Obey the commands of God. I have broken this law, and therefore, I've broken all of the laws. Pay attention. He now knows that according to Jesus, whom he's called good, who did not deny that, in fact, who went further and said that only one is good, that is God, this man, Jesus, in essence, is saying, I don't have eternal life. Jesus is saying, I don't have eternal life. The worst thing of the text is the man walks away. Instead of saying, you've exposed me, please forgive me of my sin. And turning to the Lord, begging for forgiveness. And then going out and obeying and selling what he has and come back and following the Lord. He actually turns his back on the only one who could save him from the penalty of his sins. Let this sink in. Jesus is actually offering this man to be one of his close followers. Could you imagine the eternity he could have had? Was, he, was Jesus inviting this man to become one of the twelve? Jesus is going to deny him, could this man have been the 12th disciple? We don't know. We'll never know. The Bible never says for sure, but everything leads us to believe that he's in hell today. Why? Because he loved his stuff more than he loved Jesus. He loved his stuff more than he loved other people, and he loved his stuff more than he loved his own soul. You have one more note. For he had great possessions. Materialism 
is rampant in the United States of America. Probably worse than it's ever been. Deanna and Erica were watching something the other day, and it was just talking about the accumulation and the ease with which we get stuff and how much we are marked. We, I think Dave Ramsey was part of this just little clip that was showing a lot of different people, and he popped in how we are the most marketed to group of people in the history of the world. One person, one stat they saw was at every house. Most, most houses in America have over 300,000 items in them. Materialism is not unique to our times. The sinful desire for more began with Lucifer. The sinful desire for more went to Eve. Then it fell over to Adam. Once it made it to Adam, the sinful desire for more has permeated and tempted all generations of mankind ever since Adam. All generations. Your last note is this. The love of money which is what this man, it was his besetting sin. The love of money has kept many people from obeying God's command for their life. Talking about people that refused to get saved, and now I'm talking about people who are Christians, people who are sitting in this room right now. There are some folks in this room who are listening who have not fully obeyed God's command for their life. God wanted this. God led and prompted them for something, but they're not doing it today because ultimately it's a love for money. Love for money has kept many from obeying God's call for their life, and often love for money serves as a major distraction for those who are daring to try to fulfill God's call for their life. The other day in my private reading, I'm, I'm, tomorrow I'll finish up 1 Timothy. The other day I'm reading 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I'm reading there about elders, pastors, overseers. A qualification to be an elder, pastor, overseer is that you must not be a lover of money. Can I be a lover of money and be a pastor, overseer, elder? Can't do it. Do you understand a lot of people didn't go into ministry because they're a lover of money? Do you understand that some people went into ministry and they were disqualified because they're a lover of money? Do you understand that some are trying to do the ministry, but they have a very divided heart, a very divided mind because they love money? I want to serve the Lord, but really this over here is a very distracting pursuit all the time. And it's not just in the ministry. It's all through the church. And so the Lord is going to have a lot to say to us next week in verses 23 to 30. I'll leave you with these final two thoughts. Ready? Don't read into verse 21 a universal command for all Christians. Did you catch what I just said? Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then come back and follow me. That is not a universal command for all Christians. That was a specific command for this rich young ruler who needed his besetting sin to be exposed. Now, I'll tell you the group of people who are most relieved by what I just said. You know who's most relieved? That Okay, let me get this straight. That's not a command for all of us? Okay, okay good. Just checking. Good to know. Yeah, the ones who are most relieved are probably the ones who have the most love for money. I say that for this reason. The Holy Spirit could at any moment call any of us, because he still does this, he prompts and he calls people, just give up everything you've got and go. And trust me. And you're going to re rely on other people to meet your needs because you're just going to go. That's scary. A lot of people don't do it. It's not a general universal command. It was specific, but the Holy Spirit still gives that call to some. And then the last thought I'll leave you with is this. And I don't like it. 
I find it very striking that Jesus was willing to let a man walk away without salvation. Hey, hey, man, come on back. What? Come on back. I see you're leaving. It is striking that Jesus was willing to let a man walk away without salvation because he was unwilling to forsake a specific sin. In this case, it was love for money. Note, listen, Jesus does not say, hey, come on back, listen. Just trust me as your Savior. What does that mean? Don't worry about it. Just trust me as your Savior. Say a few words. Say this prayer. We're going to worry about repentance down the road, okay? You just get saved right now. Jesus lets him go, lets him grapple with not having eternal life. Here's why. Here, I'm closing with this. Salvation is completely free, completely free. We do not earn it by being good. We do not earn it by keeping laws and commands of God. It is completely free. You only have it by receiving it as a gift, but the Lord Jesus will not let anyone receive it as a gift as long as you're clinging to some pet sin. You cannot come making a deal and negotiation at the narrow gate of the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in Him only. You can't come to that with your good works, better leave that aside, nor can you come with your little pet sin. Can I keep this? I love my materialism. Well, come on through and we'll work on it later in life. He says, no, let him go. He's not ready to get saved. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed. You've got to get lost before you can get saved. Ladies and gentlemen, repentance is a deep, a deep change of mind about ourself. Repentance means I cannot save myself. Repentance means a deep change of mind about the Savior. He's the only way to be saved. You have to be like a little child and receive Him. But can I also add that true repentance is a deep change of mind, not just about self and the Savior. It's a deep change of mind about our sin. Our sin is worse than we thought, and our sin is to be hated. So before we can come to Christ, we cannot come saying, Lord, I want you to save me. I'm not ready to take you as my Lord, really. I just I don't want to go to hell. And so I want to pray a little prayer, maybe sign a card and shake the preacher's hand and get baptized in the water. But I'm not ready to have a life change. The Lord would tell you, you're not ready to get saved. You will not be saved. So I'm asking you this. This morning... As we went through those six points of the law, just six points, just six. Did God's law help you to see, maybe for the first time, maybe someone watching this live or later, did God's law help you realize, maybe for the first time, I'm a sinner and God hates my sin. He's not going to let me into heaven. And I stand in judgment. I stand condemned to judgment. I'm going to ask more specifically, is there anyone, be it here this morning, or who's watching this later or online, in your heart, you know that the reason you've not come to Christ is because you have a besetting sin, that you're not ready to give up. You've never been ready to give it up. You've heard the gospel, but you are not ready to forsake that. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. I'm not telling you're going to live perfectly, but I'm telling you as you come to Christ, your attitude is, Lord, I am leaving my sin. I choose you over my sin, and I will never be victorious over it unless you give me victory. But I'm trusting you to be the Lord of my life and the Savior 
of my sins, the penalty and the power of it. Please take it away from me. I am trusting you and you alone, and I'm not coming making negotiations. I'm asking you to be my Savior and my Lord. If that's you, then here's what I close with. You must this morning, right now, become like a little child and realize you are bankrupt and you are dependent upon the mercies of God and the grace of God. So if that's you and the Lord is calling you this morning, why don't you just talk to him right now? Bring God the Father and the Lord Jesus into your sphere of awareness and you just start having that conversation because here's how you get saved. You acknowledge your dependence. You acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy. I have nothing to offer you, God. And then you believe, I mean trust, you rely with everything in you on the promises of God. You say, Jeff, what are the promises? Let me give you just a couple. Ready? 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess I mean, from the heart, God, I agree with you. You're right. I am a sinner. You're right about that sin and that one and that one. Lord, I hate it. I don't want it to separate me from you. Here's a promise from God. Here's one. Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And what that means is, you not only confess your sin, here's a promise. You say, God, you promise if I call on the name of the Lord Jesus, you will save me. So you have to do this. So here's what you're saying. Jesus, you're the Lord and you're my Lord. I'm calling on you. Please save me. Become my Lord. Be my Savior, my Lord. And then you just rest that he has done it. Rest in what? These next two promises. I'm going to give it to you. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, is what God says, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Acts 16, 31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. God can't lie. He cannot lie. Why don't you right now, if you have not settled your salvation, just say, God, I confess to you. Do it right now. God, I confess to you I am a sinner. I have broken your laws. I've broken them. I've shattered them. And I deserve your judgment. I deserve your judgment. But I believe what you said. And so I'm calling on you, Lord Jesus, to be my Lord and my Savior. Father, Lord, I pray as we get ready to go home and celebrate the 4th of July, how good you've been to us and our independence. Father, I pray if it be in your grace that be it someone here this morning or someone online or someone at a later date viewing this, that someone will gain true freedom freedom from their sins and its penalties through the death of your son. Lord, I'm, it's all up to you. You're sovereign. You have to do this. I can't do it. I can't talk people into salvation. I would not want to try. So Lord, I ask you to do that. Give people faith. Give them trust. Let them just rest and rely on your promises.
And then, Lord, I pray that as you do that in their lives, that they'd have the boldness and the courage to share that information and go public that they're now a follower of Jesus Christ because he saved them and he's their Lord. And so, Lord, if you'd do that, I pray that be it here someone this morning or online, that, God, they would share that, share it with us, that we could celebrate with them. Father, I pray that any of us who are the Christians in this house, if we have a besetting sin, let us know that you still want us to confess that so that our fellowship with you is clean and free and clear. May we not cling to it. May we forsake it for the sake of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.